0: From the studios of Postscript Media and
1: Canary Media.
0: In the last five years, we've tripled the amount of solar capacity connected to America's grid. Wind capacity has grown 60% in that time frame, and in just the last year alone, battery capacity has doubled. Now that's a strong showing, no doubt, but I could give you a very long list of things preventing that build-out from accelerating much, much faster. Slow utilities with outdated planning, a lack of transmission, a lack of workers— Long interconnection queues that are delaying over a terawatt of clean energy capacity. Yes, a terawatt, that's a real number. But there's a new one that has popped up on everyone's radar. Local opposition. More specifically, local opposition fueled by paranoia on social media and supercharged by financial backers willing to stoke disinformation. It's a problem that's getting worse and contributing to an increase in local policies that restrict or even ban renewable energy. In this episode, you'll hear from two journalists who are following this trend— One of them is Michael Thomas. He authors the Distilled Newsletter.
2: I like to write about deep-dive explainers into some of the topics that are in the news, but people might be unfamiliar with.
0: Last fall, Michael was doing some research on an organization called the Caesar Rodney Institute. It's this free-market think tank supported by the Kochs that is bankrolling opposition to offshore wind. And that quickly brought him to Facebook.
2: One of the things that I found in doing research on some of these clean energy opposition groups was that a lot of them organize on Facebook. Uh, So I started to look into these Facebook groups and quickly found dozens of them.
0: He joined 40 of these groups. It wasn't hard. They were mostly public. They included names like Citizens for Responsible Solar and Concerned Residents of Worth and Winnebago Counties, Iowa and Stop Industrial Solar Plants in Shelby County, Indiana. And Michael quickly picked up on their commonalities. So you go into some of these groups. What is the imagery you see? What is the style of posting?
2: The most common type of post I saw was what I call the wind turbine on fire. Um, there's just dozens of pictures of wind turbines burning in the ocean, wind turbines burning on a farm. And so if you see these images, you would think wind turbines are probably incredibly dangerous. Um, All I see on my Facebook feed is a wind turbine on fire, when in fact, there was a study by the Department of Energy a couple years back, and they looked at the 40,000 wind turbines in America. And they found that Less than a hundred of them had any sort of safety issue, and I think only a handful had had caught fire. So this is an incredibly rare event that is positioned in these Facebook groups as very common and potentially uh, life-threatening for you if you live in that community.
0: So you're on your Facebook page and your wife looks over your shoulder and says, what the hell are all those burning wind turbines? (laughs) <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, the, the other imagery that you'll see a lot is solar panels that are cracked and broken. And the context around some of these images that spread is that they will break and the toxic materials within those panels will leak into the soil or into the land around it, and that will eventually get into the water supply or into the soil. And uh, it'll, again, uh, threaten your life or potentially contaminate the entire town or county's water supply. Uh, Now, there's never been a single documented instance of solar panels that have contaminated uh, a town's water supply compared to fossil fuels where that's actually a very common experience or ha- has happened a, a number of times.
0: What Michael saw wasn't just a bunch of angry rants from an insular group of people. He saw discourse on Facebook that sometimes leapt out of groups and in into county commission meetings and town council meetings, fueling real opposition based on fake information.
2: The important thing about some of these Facebook groups is that they're changing voters' minds and They're not only turning some people from a clean energy supporter into a clean energy opponent, but they're turning these people into fierce opponents of clean energy. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey.
0: Opposition to renewables is on the rise. It's coming in many different forms, and it's having real-world impacts. We'll focus on two of them, the spread of disinformation on Facebook and dark money going to news websites that are protecting utility political power.
3: Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing, but the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events.
0: Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions, From voices across the political spectrum, listen at LatitudeMedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. We have all witnessed how a lie spread on social media can have chaotic and horrific consequences. The genocide in Myanmar, the storming of the U.S. Capitol, the attacks on government buildings in Brazil... We're living in a moment when a small group of people with bad information can quickly turn into a large group of people ready to act on that information, which is why Michael Thomas got so interested in the dozens of groups on Facebook formed around the lies that wind turbines give you cancer or solar panels contaminate water supplies. And what he noticed is that these are not necessarily people who fall along neat political or cultural lines. Is there any common profile of the type of person who participates in this group? Are they pro-fossil fuel or are they more anti-renewable energy? What's the strain of, of attitude?
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest surprises when I started to research misinformation was that people aren't denying the science of climate change. A lot of the misinformation was more related to the solution climate change. Again, one woman who I, I saw in a lot of groups said that she used to be a supporter of clean energy. Then she did her own research. She read a series of reports that showed that clean energy wasn't safe, wasn't reliable. And she became a passionate advocate for stopping clean energy. So she started a group in Indiana and Uh, has been really successful at getting press coverage for this group and some of their claims. Most of them are misleading or false. And that then drives a lot more people in the surrounding area to the Facebook group, where then all the information they see is that wind turbines catch fire, solar will uh, ruin a town's water supply, and renewables aren't reliable.
0: The profile of many members, says Michael, are similar to what you might see in anti-vaccine groups, people who say they're concerned about health or protecting their bodies or the environment and distrust corporate or government messaging. And just like America's small but vocal anti-vax group had an outsized influence on skepticism around COVID vaccines, these anti-renewable groups are also having an impact at the local level.
2: When there's a county commission meeting, debating whether or not a wind farm or solar farm is going to be approved. People show up in the dozens. In a lot of cases, it leads to these screaming matches in county commission meetings. And people who used to go to church every Sunday together, used to break bread together, are now uh, fiercely opposed to one another because one person got a wind lease uh, on their farm and might make some money from uh, this wind farm that's gonna go into their community. And another person has been in these Facebook groups reading misinformation and has come to believe that it's a huge threat to uh, their livelihood and their safety. So it ultimately leads uh, towns to sort of turn on themselves and, and start fighting amongst one another. And the starting point might be a series of posts on Facebook.
0: The starting point for much of that information spread across these groups seems to be coming from a smaller set of organizations, ones that are tapped into the flow of money coming from conservative groups and fossil fuel donors. One such group is called Citizens for Responsible Solar.
1: A quick Google search of Responsible Solar on Facebook or in Google will show you that there are dozens of websites using this nomenclature, using these um, talking points, but also linking back to each other. And we kind of followed that rabbit hole down to Citizens for Responsible Solar and and wanted to see how did this begin at its core? And why does this influence spread like wildfire?
0: That's Miranda Green. She's Director of Investigations at Floodlight. Floodlight is a nonprofit news outlet that focuses on the political and corporate players stalling climate action. Miranda noticed the same thing Michael did. Most of the posts shared in these Facebook groups often link back to the same sources with the same language. A lot of that language is couched in environmental terms. Preserving land that's under stress, conserving forests, preventing toxic waste and groundwater. And those talking points often come back to Citizens for Responsible Solar.
1: So we started digging into the woman who created it, Susan Ralston, who, interestingly enough, has mostly an entire business connected to Washington, D.C. She used to work in the Bush White House. She has taken money from political donors in the anti-climate kind of climate denier sphere. And, um, you know, really has seemed to have devoted the last couple years of her life to growing this one group, but also spreading it from county to county and then to state to state.
0: Citizens for Responsible Solar has worked with activists across at least a dozen states, according to a tally from Floodlight and NPR. Floodlight and NPR published an investigation of the group in March. And although Susan Ralston has denied taking direct fossil fuel funding, she's plugged into a network of conservative operatives that are not the types you would expect to be spreading the gospel of habitat preservation. At the time she was setting up Citizens for Responsible Solar, Ralston's firm pulled in $300,000 from the Paul Singer Foundation. Paul Singer owns an investment firm that happens to be the largest investor in Peabody Energy, America's top coal producer. The organization also works with a law firm led by Jason Torchinsky, a lawyer who worked for Americans for Prosperity, and the American Legislative Exchange Council. Those are conservative groups that actively lobby against renewable energy policies in states. Can you give me a story about how it plays out on the ground when Citizens for Responsible Solar actually plays a role to stop or slow a project?
1: Yeah. I mean, we we spoke to a couple landowners in Virginia who kind of faced this in two fronts. Um, I will say that one of the precursors to Citizens for Responsible Solar was a group called um, Concerned Citizens of Spotsylvania. And this is another kind of bedroom community in Virginia. Spotsylvania had a proposed solar ray come in. Um, this group that owned actually bought land and wanted to build solar on it to then sell back to a couple of local industries in the area, including tech companies. They had to put a proposal out there. Uh, At the time, the supervisor of the county, Greg Benton, is a Republican. He actually ran for office because he was unhappy with how much people were paying in taxes. So very much a conservative in his nature. When this group applied to be able to put solar panels on the land they owned, he did a lot of due diligence. We spoke to him. He said he visited other states. He, you know, held city council meetings. He talked to locals. He really wanted to get into the science. He listened to every negative that he got from the communities that were opposing this in his area. And he said to us, you know, he really was able to say, that's not the case here. That's not actually going to happen. But he got tremendous pushback. And he said to me, you know, he really just couldn't understand where it was coming from. At the end of the day, it was a great boon to the county. You really couldn't see the solar panels. Every negative they brought, he was able to to find out was not actually true. And But it became such a big issue in the area driven by this local opposition group um, that he ended up deciding not to seek re-election because it was just so overwhelming. And what he found is that You know, the interesting part about that story is they actually, he he greenlit the project. The project is now built, those solar panels are there. But a lot of those individuals he saw that were the concerned citizens of Spotsylvania moved on to Culpeper, which is where then Citizens for Responsible Solar really started. And Susan Ralston has said in interviews that she did talk directly to the group of locals that were opposing the Spotsylvania ordinance. Now, we've talked to others in Virginia, not just Virginia, but I'll stay with that state because it's kind of where it started, who really were hoping to use solar as a way to help their income, right? Unfortunately, Farming has been a really hard industry across America. Um, A lot of farmers rely on tax breaks. A lot of them are really struggling depending on what kind of crop they're growing. We talked to um, someone in Virginia who actually had a livestock farm. He had cattle. And the price of cattle has significantly dropped as well as the price of hay. And so he, you know, was really thinking of his future, of what will happen to his farm if he can no longer pay for it. And solar seemed like a great option for him. He could still do half of ranching. He could still do half of solar. And the second that this kind of opportunity came to him, local opposition groups started pushing back. And they were tied to Citizens for Responsible Solar. And ultimately... They passed an ordinance saying that they could not build solar within a very small section of land, which basically made it impossible. And he could no longer do it on his land, and now he doesn't know what to do.
0: These groups are taking advantage of a political reality in America. People who support projects are often less likely to show up at public meetings. Local officials, considering approval of these projects, may not be well-versed in energy. And sometimes, all it takes is a handful of very passionate people to derail something. Again, here's reporter
2: Michael Thomas. Absolutely. If you look at the maps of where the most uh, potential for wind or solar development are in the country, they tend to be in pretty rural places that don't have a lot of people. So if a Facebook group in that county has 500 people or 1,000 people, and all of those people are reading misinformation and seeing these posts about wind turbines on fire or solar panels that are going to make their kids sick, then they can have an outsized voice in that community. And um, you can see why someone who might not be well-versed in energy or might not have studied this stuff, given a series of reports that seem official and a couple dozen angry residents, it's not surprising that a lot of these counties will block a project, or in some cases, outright ban wind or solar in their community.
0: Can you talk about how this is playing out across the country, whether indirectly or directly influenced by some of these groups you're embedded with? There are a lot of local ordinances and even state r- rules or bills that are being considered that would kill uh, support for existing projects. How, how is, what does that landscape look like for policy activity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So clean energy projects have been blocked by local opponents in 49 out of 50 states. Local governments in more than 30 states have passed local ordinances that uh, either severely restrict clean energy development or outright ban it. And more than 100 local governments have passed severe restrictions, uh, setbacks that make it almost impossible to build or outright bans on clean energy. This trend is happening all across the country, and in total, it's blocking thousands of megawatts of potential clean energy capacity. When you look at the trend across the country, it's all adding up to one of the biggest barriers to clean energy adoption at this point.
0: You published this stat in the story that made me do a double-take, and it came from the Sabin Center at Columbia University, showing that 121 local policies were passed in 2022 to block or restrict renewable energy development. It was nearly a 20% increase from the year before. Uh, How much are these opposition groups contributing to that?
1: I think largely. I think that there are locals who truly are opposed to this but they're galvanized by messaging that they're finding online that is not necessarily accurate. And then they're supported by groups online or in their state or in their community that have ulterior motives, which we found. They're getting payments from organizations that have connections to climate denial, when a power company comes in or when a solar developer comes in or when a wind developer comes in and a local community says, how do we push back against this? they look online or they reach out to one of these groups and they get, you know, mock ordinances that they can draft and they start, you know, talking at their local city council meetings and then they pass bills that limit certain things then those to you know, from small communities to state by state, and they kind of grow from there. And so a lot of these, you know, changes we've seen in the last couple of years, these ordinances that have passed have really kind of seem to be learning from one another. They're using very similar language, as I mentioned. So they're using responsible solar, they're using prime farmlands. I mean, it seems like it's really generated from the same playbook.
3: mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CCO Scott Ingström, and economist Ahmad Farouki for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill. The Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say, Political Climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today.
0: Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations
3: and to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: These local opposition groups are emerging players in the political fights over clean energy expansion, but they're only one piece of the picture— Utilities have long been a force for opposition and delay, either through direct political lobbying or through astroturfing by funding fake pro-utility groups at public meetings. Miranda and her colleagues at Floodlight and NPR recently uncovered a new method of influence peddling, propping up news sites that praise utilities and cut down critics.
1: We first started digging into this story because we hired a reporter um, who had, you know, a local Miami-based reporter, and he had heard about this ghost candidate scandal that had been going around in Florida at the time. They were finding ties between this consulting firm called Matrix LLC and a bunch of fake candidates or questionable candidates who were running against um, candidates running for races in Florida who were supportive of renewable energy.
0: Matrix LLC is a political consulting firm that worked on behalf of Alabama Power and Florida Power and Light. Its website is just a big splash page with the tagline, A Comprehensive Approach to Problem Solving. And starting about a decade ago, Alabama Power and FPNL had a problem. They were facing more pressure to develop renewable energy and more scrutiny over rates from both clean energy advocates and conservative Tea Partiers alike. An investigation from the Miami Herald and Orlando Sentinel found that FPL, Florida's biggest utility, sent millions of dollars to Matrix to prop up fake candidates in local races. Those so-called ghost candidates siphoned votes away from candidates who the utility didn't like. Those practices caused a riff inside Matrix, and when the co-founders of Matrix split, information started to leak
1: as we started asking more questions, we got more documents leaked to us. So it ended up kind of snowballing, and we realized that this story was much bigger than we originally thought it was.
0: The Floodlight team found direct financial links between six local news outlets, Matrix, FPL, and Alabama Power. Matrix used utility money to fund political websites with names like Alabama Today, Florida Politics, and The Capitalist, and buy favorable coverage between 2013 and 2020
1: basically we were able to show how Matrix was essentially used as a conduit to help a lot of these big utility companies fight back against what they presume to be threats, either politically or financially.
0: So if a candidate for a regulatory seat or something was critical of Alabama Power or Florida Power and Light, or if someone came out and said that these utilities need to be doing more to develop renewable energy or promote customer-owned solar, what is the kind of reporting from these websites that you would see?
1: When these payments were happening, we could look and see that there were a bunch of local sites that were kind of working as echo chambers to spread kind of similar messaging questioning the legitimacy of these candidates or these initiatives or kind of these um, even just regulations that were happening that obviously would hurt places like Alabama Power and Florida Power and Light. And we were able to see through the payments that we had in these leaked ledgers that we got, you know, internal ledgers from Matrix itself, that there was a money trail between six local news sites that either had taken direct influence from Matrix or had been directly involved with organizers, you know, at Matrix and kind of Matrix operatives. And what was really interesting is that if we looked at the timeline of what these kind of online news sites were, we found a lot of them were created around the same time period. Two in Alabama were created the same week. Uh, A lot of them were kind of saying the same thing. They were sharing stories. A lot of them were actually pulling direct stories from Alabama Power has its own PR website. And they were basically pulling directly from their PR press releases and rewriting them into stories without saying that they were. So it was a very, you know, a clear misuse of journalism.
0: Now, this news coverage wasn't just targeting people on the left. Um, it was a pretty, basically anybody who was critical of the utilities. And one story really stands out. You profile a guy named Terry Dunn, who ran as a commissioner, you know, hardcore Tea Party guy uh, who really was questioning why Alabama Power rates were so high and wanted some transparency around um, Alabama Power's rates. And that made them very upset. What happened to Terry Dunn?
1: Yeah, you made a really good point there. The thing to remember, (laughs) the thing that I even realized in doing this reporting is this really came down to power. This really came down to making sure that the company was not going to face lots of regulation. We're not going to face a lot of questions. We're not going to have to deal with politicians who are going to kind of put them on the spot. And that's what we saw with Terry Dunn. Terry Dunn is a local guy. He's, you know, bread and butter, Alabama. He's a Trump supporter. And he decides that he's going to run as a regulator in the state of Alabama. And one of the things that he ran on was actually that he specifically wanted to open Alabama's books. Alabama Power had not had to have a rate hearing in 30 years, three decades. And Terry Dunn said, that's something I want to look into. Uh, Alabama, actually, Alabama Power has had some of the highest earnings out of any utility company in the country year after year, specifically in the last couple of years. And people in the state of Alabama are paying some of the highest utility bills. And so he wanted to see why that was the case. But after he won, he found out pretty quickly that there was going to be a lot of pushback to that. First, he got a lot of side comments, he said, from people in the industry saying, you could last in this job for a long time if you kind of just go along and get along. Then when he started trying to set up these meetings, he started getting a lot of pushback and started feeling like he was being followed. Eventually, the pushback that he felt was so strong, he started seeing it in local newspapers. Kind of similar arguments of, is Terry Dunn actually an environmentalist? The time they were, you know, if you look at some of these articles that were written about him, they were saying he's in the pocket of Obama. He's actually, you know, with the EPA, which in a deeply red state like Alabama was essentially a death sentence. And what's interesting about those publications is that these are, you know, two of these publications, which were Alabama Today and Alabama Political Reporter, were getting payments through Matrix. And four years later, when it was time for re-election, Terry Dunn, he lost his election to a catfish farmer. And he decided it was time for him to get out of Birmingham. And he moved north. And we recently talked to him and asked, how does he feel today? Especially knowing that some of those publications that targeted him were linked to Matrix and he still feels a lot of resentment. He actually told us in a quote, Alabamians bitched about high power bills, but when they had someone that would address it, they abandoned me. So let them struggle to keep the lights on, which is a pretty, pretty strong quote.
0: So real world consequences for someone like Terry. What about for the renewables industry, for policies promoting clean energy in states like Florida and Alabama? What are the consequences?
1: the consequences are really big. I mean, there's very if you talk to anyone in Alabama, there basically is no renewables industry. In Florida, it's the sunshine state, but a negligible percentage of power actually comes from solar. And a lot of that is because um politicians that have taken payments from Florida Power and Light and Matrix and Others that are kind of aligned with the the, the utility companies and the oil and gas industry have made it so hard for bills to pass or have put restrictions on how much people can actually make off of solar panels, making it almost impossible or financially, um, you know, improbable for them to put them on their their own roofs and make and and make power that way. And so, you know, I think that it's kind of important to look at this two way. It's, it's it's bad for the the solar industry. It's bad for the renewable industry. It's bad for the planet. But it's actually bad for locals, right? It's bad for a lot of these individuals who don't have the option of kind of a market that might allow them to try getting their power a different way. They don't have the option of choosing renewable energy, but they also don't have the option of potentially choosing something cheaper. And because they don't know why their rates are the same way as we saw in Alabama, they still have not had an open rate hearing to this day.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to note here that this isn't always about renewables. Florida Power and Light has one of the biggest renewable energy development arms in the country, but they want to own it. (laughs) And uh, any policies that promote customer empowerment are potentially a threat to the utility. And so in the same way that a lot of these criticisms were um, nonpartisan, It was about retaining power and anybody who was willing to stand up to the utilities. It's the same thing for renewables policies. And that these utilities are really more interested in just owning everything than about renewables being a bad thing.
1: And yeah, at the end of the day, you know, the story is really a story about corruption. Uh, you know, it has all of the elements, but it's really about how businesses continue to thrive and continue to make sure that they're you know, shareholders make a good profit.
0: Mm-hmm. And these two stories, the story of corruption and power and the story of astroturfing, I mean, these these are very old stories, but then they just take on different forms. And what feels different is um, the way that social media has supercharged a lot of these local astroturfed opposition groups and the way that a organization like Matrix came in in this local news vacuum. And you write about this in the piece that um, Matrix took advantage of the near collapse of the local newspaper industry. I'm quoting from your piece there. So how did Matrix take advantage of this massive gap that has emerged in local news coverage?
1: I think, you know, Matrix actually kind of took advantage of two simultaneous things happening, which is one, as you mentioned, the kind of the gap in local news coverage as local media sites and local newspapers were essentially shuttering and folding and turning to one or two day affairs. But they also were taking advantage and a lack of trust in media in general, especially, you know, national or mainstream news. So as people in red states like Florida, I guess it's a purple state, but redder states like Florida and definitely red states like Alabama are no longer trusting, you know, national news sites like the New York Times and the Washington Post and insert, you know, whatever newspaper you want there. They are looking to other places to get their news. And so they kind of, I think Matrix was really adept at trying to find a way to kind of be like, well... We can pitch these stories to places as a a political consultancy, or we can maybe just buy and create our own, which is what they did. And these news sites and these local places, they, you know, when you click on alabamatoday.com, it looks just like any other kind of local news site. It's got scrolling articles, up-to-date, you know, um, taglines. It has bylines from reporters that are actual reporters that they've hired with real LinkedIn accounts. It's got news about everything. It's not just, you know, about power. But if you specifically look at every article they've written about Alabama power, which is what we did, you will see that there is an overwhelming bias towards positive coverage. So for example, we saw a lot of news about storm coverage. Storm happens, power goes out, power goes back on. That's kind of the the normal trajectory of how these things work. Most news articles you will see will probably say something like power goes out, 6,000 people without power, they're without power for three days, then it goes back on. The articles that were writing about this that were connected to Matrix, their titles were... Alabama power brings power back to 6,000 people in record time. And that was the kind of reporting that really just stood out to us, especially as reporters and the ethics of this, because it was very clear that there was a manipulation here at play.
0: Miranda Green is director of investigations at Floodlight. You also heard from Michael Thomas, who is a journalist who writes the climate newsletter Distilled. And there's an update to the Matrix story. Earlier this year, FPL's CEO stepped down amidst a swirl of scandal at the company, including campaign finance violations, journalist surveillance, and media manipulation. This episode was produced by me with help from Dalvin Abouage. Sean Marquan is our technical director. Roy Campanella, the third, mixed the show. Original music came from Echo Finch, Epidemic Sounds, and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude supports a wide range of climate tech companies across advanced energy, food and ag, transportation, logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. And we're going to have a live show from a Prelude event coming up later in April. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us out there. It's hugely helpful, and send us your thoughts on social media. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. We will catch you next week.